Welcome back to Couch to Couch, Making Therapy Make Sense with Chuck LeBlanc. We have Steve Clark back in action on the podcast. I think this is uh, guest appearance number three, I think, which is awesome. I believe so. And Steve, as everybody can remember, is uh, from Nova Scotia. He's a counselor in Nova Scotia, a psychotherapist qualifying out there. He also takes clients in Ontario. Um, do you do Canada-wide or is it just Ontario and Nova Scotia? Um. I will take clients anywhere they'll let me, basically, which I think right now, oh, I can't remember. So yeah, each province has its own regulations, mm-hmm. but uh, I think maybe Quebec is, I think I'm, I'm allowed to have, <clears throat> I think I'm allowed to have clients pretty much anywhere in, on, in Canada, but so far all of my clients are in Ontario. <laughs> Gotcha. And I know you're looking to transfer into Ontario yourself. You'll be making the move at some point. At least that was the last time we talked. You were talking about moving over, but I haven't asked you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. And uh, <clears throat> I, I don't know. I feel bad. I've been telling people for five years that I'm moving back soon and <laughs> it keeps on getting put off. The pandemic <laughs> well, didn't help. Time is relative, right? Just yeah. throwing Tom, a little Einstein in there. Time is relative. It's soon eventually. It seems like it seems like time is more relative recently. Mm-hmm. Like time started to make less sense after like all the lockdowns and everything. <laughs> yeah, that's right. All the days kind of bleed together and look the same. So you yeah. can't really do anything. It's very true. This year has gone by uh, it's probably the fastest year of my life so far. Yeah. Yeah, like what the heck happened to 2021? I know. It's, it's like been... 2020 was the longest year of our lives, and then 2021 was the like, it's like this, this little blip that happened after yeah. after 2020. It's like the hangover year or something. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I wonder if it's... We kind of uh, stumbled our way through it. Yeah, I wonder if it's the... Uh, I'm thinking a lot about that. The fact that we were like in the second year of the COVID, and... We're just like used to this shit by now where things are just yeah. not normal. So the body is just like, I'm not going to record this. We're just going to live it. Yeah. Enjoy. And then all of a sudden it's December. Yeah. Yeah, it's December. Holy crap. Yeah. But I mean, we can walk down the philosophy of time if you want, but I'm not sure that's why people are here <laughs> to get a Berksonian lesson from, from us. But we wanted to talk, uh, it's actually, it's fitting. We wanted to talk a little bit about ADHD today. Yeah, yeah, because time, what do they call it? Time is a term. You don't know the term. Uh, for people with ADHD, they have a hard time keeping track of Yeah, the relationship with time is a little bit different. I forget, the, I know what you're talking about, but I forget the term entirely. But it's... Well, with ADHD, it's basically a, uh, I call it an executive function malfunction. Anytime I put the milk in the cupboard and the cereal in the fridge, but yeah. ADHD affects your executive functions, which is in your prefrontal cortex. I knew you were going to get into the uh, neuroscience of it. Right into it. Cause that's just my jam. Um, but it affects everything that has to do with your executive functions which is like your short-term memory timekeeping goal setting planning 
mm-hmm. um, and mix all that together is short-term <laughs> planning, right? If I'm going to walk into the kitchen to get something and I'm going to get there and it's gone, I have no idea because it was more interesting to think about the book I was reading three days ago. Yeah, basically is how that works. Yeah, um, yeah. And you'd think that you would think that like like there's certain strategies you can use, like repeat, like if, if you're going from one room to another and you just repeat to yourself over and over in your head what you're going to the other room for, like, mm-hmm. like go get the milk, go get the milk, go get the milk. And then by the time you get to the other room, like you don't even notice the point at which you get distracted. Right. And that's mm-hmm. part of the problem. I don't know about you, but for me, it's like, like those strategies often just do not work at all because mm-hmm. by the time I get there, I like, I, I don't even know at what point I stopped repeating to myself, like repeating, repeating the mantra to myself to try to make myself remember, like just the act of repeating the mantra reminds me of something interesting. <laughs> I just started thinking about that. That's because the mantra is so damn boring. <laughs> it's not, yeah. it's, you just want to get it out of your head right away. It becomes background noise, which I think is a lot of my observation over, because I mean, I have ADHD, I've had it for most of my life, all of it. Um, it's such a silly thing to say, <laughs> is that if anything becomes even remotely boring or not relevant, it is gone. Yeah. And the the strategy and trick over time, which we'll get to a little bit later for myself, is to make things, to have a hand and agency in making things interesting. Yes. That's more of an active role as to what you're interested in than a passive role. Uh, A little bit how that would work Uh, because it's all about your prefrontal cortex, right? And it's, but that's, that's only like one side of the game is biology and behavior. The other side of the game is environment and Mm -hmm. development, right? So when you have issues as someone with, with ADHD, they come from like two different places. One is uh, biology. Yeah. And the other one is environmental. So they would call them most issues develop through uh, developmental issues, which means the environment isn't set up for the engine that you have under the hood. So best example of that is a classroom, right? Some sitting down in a classroom, having to be quiet while the teacher is talking to you is a bit of a nightmare scenario for someone with a brain like mine, right? <laughs> yeah. And that's not the fault of the brain. That's the that's the environment. Mm-hmm. It's just not set up for how I need to be learning. Yeah, it's a mismatch. It's a mismatch. Yeah. And so what ends up happening when you're a kid is the environment will respond to you instead of the other way around. So they'll tell you like, uh, you distract everybody else or you're too loud or you stop moving in your chair. Like, so there's a lot of like shame responses to your behaviors. Yeah. Which then you internalize over time because that's what we do Mm -hmm. and then you develop like anxiety later on in life uh, and low self-esteem and all kinds of other developmental issues that throw you off Mm. yeah yeah definitely and yeah yeah like trying to get the, the the kid to fit into the environment instead of modifying the environment to suit the kid that's right which makes sense like like obviously you got one teacher and, and 20 students, like there's only so much they can do to tend to the individual needs. <laughs> That's right. Every student, like part of it is just a kind of a, a product of the system. Now there are some incredible teachers out there mm-hmm. who do a really good job of that, but 
but yeah, I think most people with ADD had a pretty horrible time in the school system. Mm -hmm. It's very Foucaultian because it always reminds me of prison. Oh, right. And that's, you know, that was one of his, I think it was uh, discipline and punishment. One of his points, and I'm going to, I won't get too deep into this, was how the school system was built <clears throat> around the prison system. So the, the hospitals, they were built based on the same idea. Really? So that's why people, are, they're all based on an environment of discipline rather than ex exploration. That's why if you walk into a Montessori uh. school, it looks so different from like public schools or Catholic schools that we, we might have been through. I went through a Catholic school. So the environment looks so different than publicly funded schools uh, yeah. because they're based on an entirely different system. Yeah. You're not necessarily chained to your desk. Yeah. To put it in that way. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's really funny for me. Like, I, I don't know about, I'd be really interested to compare experiences because it sounds like you knew from a very young age that like, were you diagnosed as a kid with ADHD? Yeah. So I, I was diagnosed. Well, as far as I know, they had a conversation with my parents when I was like really young. Okay. I'm not sure how young, I think it was in kindergarten, grade one in and around that area. Um, and like there's, I did, there's something wrong with your kid. Gosh. Yeah. <laughs> we can't glue him to the floor. Um, and so I know that my mom was very like, uh, like super hands-on. Okay. So she worked with like the teachers and, and to try to figure out how to teach oh, me. Oh, that's awesome. Um, and that way yeah. they didn't, I didn't end up being medicated when I was a kid because my mom was just like, nope, that's not happening. So they worked with me. And I know that a lot of the lessons I learned when I was younger, I did not incorporate until I was in university. Okay. okay. <laughs> so, because I had like a horrible time in school until I went to university. Um, I almost failed high school. Uh, to this day, I, I always say that the only reason they graduated me is because I'm such a nice guy. But I basically averaged out at like 50s, 55s all the way through school. Nice. And then when I got to university, uh, two months after I got my acceptance letter to go to St. Thomas in New Brunswick, I went to the doctor and got re-diagnosed. I was okay. like, listen, it's a new transition in my life. I'm going to university. I definitely shouldn't be there, but I'm going to need something to help me out if I'm going to give it a go. So <laughs> mm -hmm. they re-diagnosed me and gave me Ritalin. I was on it for, I think, three months. Okay. Um, and then got off of it and kind of worked with my own brain to incorporate those things again, which worked out because I was like a straight A student throughout my university life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Like, I, and I, I've heard a similar experience from a lot of other people with ADD where they basically did really poorly in and it's not true of everyone's i think some people with add actually do quite well in school mm -hmm. when they're younger but a common it's a common track of doing poorly in school until you actually start studying something you're interested in that's right and then all of a sudden you, you yeah you start getting great marks like that's exactly what happened to me like same as you barely passed high school um and uh like like my I think I occasionally got a, a high mark in like English because I liked writing, but mm -hmm. um, mostly it was like 60s and 70s and barely passed. I think I passed grade 10 math with a 55 um, 
And that was only because my dad like forced me to like sit down and study for two weeks straight before the final exam. I think I went into the final exam with uh, like like forty something percent, mm-hmm. and the exam was worth fifty percent of my mark. Okay, something like that. So uh, all I knew is that. We did the math and we figured out that in order to pass the course, I had to get 95% or higher on the final exam. Oh my God. <laughs> and I was just like, not happening. I give up now. And my dad was like, no, nope. this is, this is, you're studying and you're passing this exam with a 95 or higher. And I'm so like, in retrospect, I'm so glad he made me do that because I would have had to retake the entire course and that would have been far worse. Yeah, um, a nightmare. <laughs> But I did it. We studied for two weeks straight and I passed with like, yeah. There was all kinds of examples like that that, that told me that you're not failing because you're stupid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's just because you don't care. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard to focus on things that you don't care about. Yeah. And one of, I mean, one of the big reasons for that with respect to a, an ADHD brain is emotional regulation, right? So similar to mm. similar to people with a concussion, uh, people with ADHD have emotional regulation um, difficulties. I'm not going to say issues because it's a bit different, but it's yeah. emotional regulation uh, difficulties because we can get worked up. So if you think of what I mentioned before, it's a lot of it is developmental issues. You've been dealing with a lot of frustration. The environment is just, it doesn't work for you, which is irritating, yeah. which is bothersome, yeah. which is depressing, like all of the emotions you can imagine. Yeah. And so when we get frustrated, typically we give up right away. Mm. It's, it's, it's a matter of like rage quit, as they used to say in video <laughs> game terms. It's rage yeah. quitting a lot because it's, there's a lot of weight behind failure when you're used to failure like that. And if the environment's not set up for you and you're going to fail at everything, yeah. then you're just confirming you're an idiot would be in my case. Cause that was, would be the thoughts going in my head. Yep. And so learning later on that you're not actually an idiot takes a long time to remember that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's mainly it developmental. Uh, as far as I'm, as far as I'm concerned, a lot of what I see facing people with ADHD is developmental. And there is behavioral, there is biological stuff, but there is like workarounds. Yeah. Have you read the book? Um, I've only read one book on ADHD so far. So um, forgive me if I bring it up more than once. I don't know if I have it here. It's called uh, Scattered Minds by Gabor Mate. A long time ago, yeah. His thoughts yeah. on ADHD is really enlightening. Yeah, I think slightly controversial, but yeah, I, I really enjoyed the book. Um, and cause I, I find that there's pretty strong opinions out there, like, and by out there, I mean, like, in Facebook groups on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> the troll armies are pretty strong. <laughs> the troll armies are strong, yes. Um, and yeah, but like some people are like, convinced that ADHD is 100% biological and other people seem to be convinced that it's 100% developmental Mm -hmm. 
and yeah i mean if there's one thing that i've learned after doing a psychology degree it's um that nothing is ever 100 biological or 100 percent developed that's right that's right it's always both that's right and that's basically what gabor mate says but he breaks it down in a really interesting way where have you you've heard the term highly sensitive person mm-hmm. so and, and i don't know if he uses that term specifically but his basic like theory of adhd is that the biological part of it like the genetic part of it is the sensitivity mm. that not everyone who has high sensitivity has adhd but everyone who has adhd has high sensitivity and then once you mix, match that high sensitivity with a certain type of environment um childhood environment that's when the adhd develops mm. i thought that was interesting yeah it's it's is it typically trauma related or i can't remember well i know for him see, substance abuse is trauma related but I'm not, i can't remember yeah ADHD. well here's the thing like gabor mate is accused of by his detractors of relating everything back to trauma mm-hmm. which is a fair criticism i think except that the definition of trauma like good luck defining like finding a, a, a definition of trauma that everyone agrees on mm-hmm. and i find that like, like some for some people it's like you know only really serious things like you know being like sexually abused or mm-hmm. or witnessing a violent car accident like those people pe- some people will say that's what trauma is is like some kind of event that uh has a lasting impact, um, <clears throat> like a single event. Mm-hmm. But I think Gabor Mate's definition of trauma is much broader. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's not just considering something that happens specifically to you. He's also considering like what happened to your parents and how that impacted um, their relationship with you and their mm-hmm. ability to be emotionally open with you. Mm-hmm. And like generational trauma transgenerational trauma yeah um so trauma can seep in in a lot of different ways and when you consider all the ways it can seep in it does become very easy to trace everything back to trauma because when he when he talks about like childhood environment that produces adhd and sensitive children i think he's one thing he does talk a lot about is parents who are emotionally unavailable mm-hmm and not just uh parents but like teachers and um you know uh he, he talks about a lack of attunement so like the caregivers in your life not noticing what you need in a given situation mm-hmm. and uh yeah it's actually been a little while since i've read it too but so I guess when you're highly sensitive or have high sensitivity in an environment where you're largely unattuned with. Yeah, where your attachment needs aren't being met. Mm-hmm. Then you're in a bit of a scramble as a kid to try to reach those needs. I would wonder, this might not be the 
the place for it, but I would wonder the difference in his opinion between uh, developing ADHD and developing an anxious attachment response. Because in attachment yeah. literature, that's how anxious attachments develop is from being yeah. dismissed. Mm -hmm. And so would the difference there be its expression relationally? Like if normal day-to-day -day functioning is, is fine, no ADHD is present, but in, in relational depth and how people bond, the anxious attachment is present. So there's like mm. a difference in, in the environments. I wonder how that would work. Yeah, I'm curious about that as well. And I've actually, I've been tempted <clears throat> in, you know, in these uh, ADHD Facebook groups. I, I kind of want to, there's nothing scientific about it, but uh, about doing it this way. But it'd be fun to run a poll and just be like, if you know what your attachment style is, is it anxious or avoidant or secure and like I have a feeling my theory would be that people with ADHD probably tend to have an anxious attachment style I would agree because a lot of your I know just for myself growing up a lot of, a lot of my bonding uh, outside of the family was like through bullying right people thought I was strange mm. and weird and so I was bullied and outcasted and I had to like small groups of friends yeah. and that translated into relationships uh, later on, when I started dating in around 16, 17, mm -hmm. I definitely had an anxious attachment style throughout all of that. Yeah, people pleasing and mm -hmm. just trying to like make constantly make sure that the relationship is okay and doing whatever you can to keep it from, you're like always worried that it's about to fall apart. Yeah. And, that good old yeah. amygdala, you know, if the, my 16 year old. Uh, relationship, right? At 16, mm. if I end up being single again, I'll die. <laughs> yeah. Good old anxious attachment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because we've just named a lot of environmental factors that lead to different expressions of ADHD. Yeah. And we do know that there is a neurological factor, so the biology is there. So it's definitely not 100% one or the other, which I think is really <clears throat> it's important to know that. But it's also it important yeah. to know, I think, that it's, I always consider it like engines under the hood. I'm not sure if we've had this conversation before, but it's, I always picture like, uh, life is a highway. There's a shout out to an old, really good song. Um, and everybody's driving like Volkswagen Beetles. But when you have ADHD, you have like a Ferrari engine. So mm -hmm. you're on this highway, it has a speed limit, everybody's got the exact same car, but then you're driving around, your car's got a little bit more guts. You're trying to figure out how do I navigate getting through this highway. Yeah, you gotta be real easy with your foot on the gas. <laughs> that's right, that's right. And so how do I hone in my focus or where do I wanna go with this uh, yeah. to, to fit with the drive? And do I have to? Do I have mm -hmm. to uh, match the speed limit of other people? And I know there is a theory about this because obviously ADHD has caused a lot of problems. Like a lot of problems can show up in your life when you're undiagnosed and it's, you know, oftentimes it's diagnosed as, uh, anxiety, anxiety disorders are misdiagnosed yep. and sometimes depression. That's right. And so we know that biologically there's like a, it's like a dopamine deficiency, which yeah. is why, uh, ADHD, people with ADHD are more, uh, more likely to be, uh, to abuse substances. Yeah, and just be impulsive in general. Impulsive in general, uh, because you get that dopamine hit and we're at a lower level, so it's like really exciting. 
Mm-hmm. And there's a theory to help with this called the ABCs. I'm not sure if I've ever talked to you about the ABCs, but... I don't think so. For me, this has been the most helpful in my own life and helpful in my practice when assisting people navigating okay. their lives. And so ABCs... I actually, I actually brought a stack of paper and a pen because I knew that I was going to learn some good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, so the ABCs stand for antecedent behavior and consequence. Okay. Yeah, I have heard that that layout before, but not in regards to ADD. And so with, with normal ways of interacting with people ADHD, so we talked about the classrooms, this could also happen at home. And personally, we get really frustrated with behaviors. Like behaviors, okay. the usual focus is like, we got to change the behavior. How can we change this behavior? God damn it, stop climbing the wall. Yeah. Right? Like little things like that. Why are you so forgetful when I ask you to go get something from the grocery store when you come home from work and you forget like all these little pieces that are like shame based mm-hmm. can be very frustrating naturally for the world around us. People having to deal with us on a daily basis, but it's also set up that way. And so when you constantly try to change the behavior because you're getting consequences you don't like, mm-hmm. then you're focusing more on behavior than anything else. And you can't really change behaviors in themselves. Mm-hmm. The behavior is an expression of a habit, not a thing, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Yeah, yep. Not totally cognitive. cognitive, it's reflexive. Yeah, and you might actually end up, like if all your focus is on changing the behavior, you might actually end up, you know, through a, after a lot of difficulty changing that, you might successfully change that one behavior in your child, but it's just going to show up in a different way somewhere else because the underlying issue has not yet been addressed. That's right. And, and think about what happens when you're trying to change a child's behavior. Like when you're trying to change a child's behavior, you're, you're like, you know, don't do this, do that. Instead of this, do that. That's a lot of like shame conversations that could show up. I'm not saying, I mean, as parents, you have to step in because the kid just got here. They don't know how this world works. So you should not put the fork in the uh, in the outlet, right? Like so that's not what I'm saying. But yeah, yeah. Um, there's so much shame that goes behind it that they can then internalize that shame, which is what I call weaponized shame, when we start yeah. to shame ourselves later on in life. And that's a lot of developmental issues that happens with people with ADHD is they have weaponized shame and guilt that mm-hmm. they use in order to keep themselves in line with the environment to fit in. But it damages yeah. self-esteem, self-confidence, oh. and it holds people back. It's such a, yeah, such a damaging strategy. Like, like, I'm not saying that it doesn't make sense that people do it because it's what I've done for most of my life. Mm-hmm. But like, what a toxic way to go through the world of just like, you're a horrible person. So that's why you shouldn't do this and this and this. That's right. Yeah. I can't do this because I'm not capable. I can't do this because I'm an idiot. I shouldn't put myself out there. People will laugh at me. Like all these little things, that show, imposter syndrome develops from this. And mm-hmm. this is all just weaponized shame to keep you in line with like the group around you. That's it. Yeah. But it ends up, you don't get to live a fulfilling life that way because you hold yourself back. And so instead of focusing on behaviors, you focus on the antecedents. And an antecedent literally means everything that comes before the behavior shows up mm-hmm. environment, social environment, like all of the pieces 
that think I think of it as all of the pieces that are in place that ask for a certain behavior. Mm -hmm. So part of when I'm walking clients through this or myself through it is to understand, okay, what's, we know the behavior that I have, we know how it expresses and we know the consequences I don't want. Fair enough. Yeah. So yeah. we don't have to think much on that. We know them. So why don't yeah. we think of, okay, well, what's going on in my environment that is asking for this, that wants me to behave this way. So one of the easiest ways for me was time because mm -hmm. time is boring. I don't really care. So I always think I have too much of it so yeah. late for literally everything. Yeah. Um, so how do I set my environment up where I don't have to be in control of how I spend, how I choose t the way time works on me, like alarm clocks, notifications on my phone, uh, things like that, that where the environment can just do its thing. And then I'm like, oh yeah, I go over here. Yeah. This is how I do things. So for me, it started with the morning, like wake ups, waking up in the morning. I used to be a night owl and I, I would usually wake up like 10 minutes before I had to like go to work, which yeah. always involved the mad scramble of like shoving food <clears throat> in your face and running out the door and either showing up on time, like at the nick of it or five minutes late. All yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I always felt like I didn't really have a life because all I did was like <laughs> go to bed, scramble, go to work. And so what I started doing was setting alarm uh, further away from my bed because I used to in my sleep, I used to turn my alarm yeah. off my phone. Yeah. And so I would set it up so I had to get up and go get it. So it's away from me. Yeah. But also uh, I had to set it up eventually to something interesting that I would want to wake up to because I would just sleep through it and my dreams would just have music in it <laughs> and I yeah. wouldn't care. Yeah. And so I had to pick something that was interesting to me, which is like uh, the first thing I ever did was like the Superman theme song. I'll never forget that. Uh, Power Rangers theme song and uh, Painkiller by Judas Priest. Imagine <laughs> being a roommate to a guy who wakes <laughs> up to that. But it worked. <laughs> and now I wake like, up at like 530. Like with or without the alarm, I get up because you built the behavior was built once the environment was crafted that way. And so there's a lot of different things like that. Uh, what's another one that's common? Well, we talk about remembering things. I always say, if somebody asks me, can you just remember this? It's done. I can't. It's done. If I don't see it, yeah. it's gone. Otherwise, I can yeah. remember everything so long as it's in the visual field. But if I'm, okay. if I'm just internally talking to myself, don't forget the milk, don't forget the milk. Yeah. I, it's gone. And that yeah. is biology because uh, it's a prefrontal yeah. cortex problem. So with the executive functions, we just don't hold on to it. Mm -hmm. because people with ADHD were more visual cortex oriented. So the more you can set your environment up to assist you with the visual, the yeah. better. So I don't know if you've seen Bruce Almighty. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's a scene oh, yeah. the post-it note room. Yeah. It's like covered in post-it notes. That's what I, my room looked like when I was doing my master's thesis. I had okay. different colored post-it, like hundreds of different colored post-it notes everywhere. That kept everything yeah. visual. Yeah. And I had like colors for when like my wife wanted me to do something. Yeah. Colors for when I had to write something in my master's thesis, correspond to this person. But what it is, is I'm setting up my environment to ask for a certain. Behavior. Yes. Yes. Color coordination has like really helped me a lot. Like having different colors that mean different things, mm -hmm. whether it's like in an Excel file or, or 
you know, on paper with highlighters or post-it notes. Yeah, making them more visually present is a great yeah. way to remember things. Yeah. Yeah, so really, and, and this whole idea of changing the environment that produces the behavior, the whole antecedent thing, like, it, uh, it really comes from a place of acceptance, right? Mm-hmm. Of like, and I, I feel like that's a, a stage that everyone with ADHD has to pass through at some point. Mm-hmm. From like, feel, the, moving from a mindset of, I have to change myself, I have to fix myself, there's something wrong with me. Moving from that to, I, I have ADHD, that's not going to change. I need to start adjusting everything else mm-hmm. to like fit with the ADHD. That's right. It, and that, how similar is that to everything else? Everyone's brain works yeah. differently. Yeah. We're not, you know, people without ADHD aren't like carbon copies, carbon copies of each other. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 that's not like there's a certain type of language that people use online uh, when they're talking about ADHD and they talk about everyone else as the neurotypicals. I'm like, okay, is there anyone in the world who's neurotypical, really? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, and like it all boils down to, same with ADHD, but it's all boils down to, okay, what engine do I have under the hood? Mm -hmm. How does it work? Yeah. And then how can I make everything else work for me? Yeah. And what does that look like? Instead of trying to make me work for everything else, mm-hmm. how do I make the environment work for me? So if I'm trying to produce a behavior and, uh, you know, like beating my head against the wall by trying to change the behavior itself isn't working. Yeah. Well, that just means that that's not how I work. It mm-hmm. doesn't mean that there's anything wrong. It just means that with the appliance that I have, that's just not how it works. But when yeah. you change the, the environment, that then asks for a certain expression of a behavior. Yeah. That's different because now what you're asking it to do is you're working with yourself to recreate the environment, to mold it. And I have a big piece on this in a minute to then ask for a certain behavior that when you do this repeatedly, what you end up doing is creating a habit Mm -hmm. and rituals for people with ADHD are like godsends. Because now you don't have to think about it. So I just mentioned before that I had to set my environment up to make sure I wake up at a certain time. And now I wake up at a certain time without like needing the alarm. Yes. Yes. And uh, yes. I will say that like, I I do, I can see how rituals can be really helpful for people with ADHD. Sometimes it can be frustrating though, because I might qualify that just by saying that an established ritual Mm -hmm. is a godsend but establishing the ritual in the first place i find so difficult once it's there it's awesome and very helpful Um, i appreciate that qualification because that's exactly right getting the ritual is a whole other thing yeah (laughs) but once it's in place it's like okay it's like yeah it's like well have you heard the term decision fatigue yep yeah I find I have so much decision fatigue, like, like just the amount of things I have to decide in a day. Right. Mm -hmm. But, and, and when I have days that are kind of a little more 
planned out, have a little more ritual involved somehow, like like habits. Um, you just don't have to decide quite as many things over the course of the day. And there's something very, uh, I don't know, calming about that. Yeah, definitely. That was, that was basically my, like my trick in my twenties was I, over the 10 years of my twenties, I like ritualized most of my life Mm -hmm. to the point where I even, I'm still made fun of by my friends, but I had the exact same clothing. I would not change. You probably noticed when we were in school together, I always wore like a black polo and blue jeans. And that's because I had five black polos <laughs> and two blue jeans in my, and I never changed. Nice. It was super rare for me to wear anything different. And it was just so, and it was part of the decision fatigue. It's just like, I didn't have to decide yeah. this. I can just basically fall into my clothes and then go to where I need to go. Because I yeah. don't have time. I was going to yeah. school, working full time. It was like 70 hour weeks. Yeah. I don't want to think I... about what I'm going to wear. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Like I, if if I go into a store and there's shirts on sale and there's like seven of them and they're like slightly different colors, like that is amazing. Like I've got, that's one shirt for each day of the week and I never have to make a decision about what shirt I'm going to wear (laughs) until all these shirts get old and ratty and then I got to go find more. But yeah, I'm the same way. Like what I'm wearing right now, this is what I wear. Like I, sometimes I worry that my my clients are gonna think I never change my clothes. <laughs> but I have like five of these shirts. Yep. And I wear them to every single session. And no one's said anything yet. <laughs> yeah, I was famous for that. I, I had one client call me out on that, which made me laugh pretty hard. I, I have these. Uh, uh, what are they called? Plaid shirts. Yeah. Three plaid shirts, different colors, and I would wear them all always. All same day and everything. So it's like red shirt day, <laughs> green shirt day, white shirt day. <laughs> and people started to notice. <laughs> oh, boy. That's but awesome. those are some things to do is to, you know, ritualize your life. And being able to build those habits does take considerable amount of effort. That's where the agency is. It mm-hmm. has to be. It has to be. Uh, the agency is in building those habits mm-hmm. which is why you yeah. always pick one at a time yeah don't try to ritualize your entire day in the first shot because you're going to overwhelm your system yeah which yep. is a problem for everyone right yeah that's the amygdala response will kick in once you've overwhelmed your system too much and then you can't everything else gets thrown out because your body's like oh saber tooth tiger mm-hmm. so you have to be careful there but always pick one at a time and say okay today this week i'm going to focus on waking up or this week, I'm going to focus on uh, when somebody asks me to do something, writing it down, keeping yeah. it visual, a place yeah. where I can't not see it. Yeah. 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 No, this is really good stuff. I'm, 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 uh, I'm already coming up with plans for myself for how to implement some of this. I find so here's. Another symptom of uh, ADHD, which is kind of frustrating for me, which is I'll get really excited about a new idea Mm -hmm. and I'll be really good at implementing it for about a two week period. Mm -hmm. And after that, it's not as interesting anymore. And then I just fall off the bandwagon. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. I mean, and I feel like in order to really establish 
a ritual, you kind of have to do it for like at least a month before it really, really it becomes automatic mm -hmm. to the point of happening even when you don't find it that interesting. Yeah, the question I would have, I mean, obviously that's a personal experience of mine, um, is at what point does it not, does it become uninteresting? Like, what point do you start noticing the interest is like the fire is dying a bit? I would imagine mm -hmm. there's something in there happening. So for me, I'll be really excited. I'll be going for it. And then there's at some point where the anxiety will kick in. The imposter syndrome will show up. Yeah. You can't yeah. do this. You yeah. know what you're doing. You're an idiot. You have no experience. And the minute that happens, then the shame spiral turns on. And it's like, well, yeah, actually, I have low self-esteem. I've never done this before. Mm -hmm. Maybe I should go ask somebody for help. That and it's gone. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that that'd be a very uh, very good thing for me to to try to tune into. At what point does it start changing, and what what triggered what triggered those that the shame spiral and the imposter syndrome? Mm -hmm. yeah because one thing that i have always struggled with is getting up in the morning um like you saying like waking up and then it's a mad scramble to get to work and like i when i was in high school i lived about a five minute sprint from my school 15 minute walk five minute sprint and so of course i would get up 10 minutes before the bell rang for the start of class. That's when I'd wake up. I would like get dressed in a mad scramble, like try and grab like an apple or something on my way out the door, eat the apple while running, which is not good for your digestive system. And then sprint all the way to class. And then, um, yeah, barely get there on time. Well, most of the time I didn't get there on time. And uh, yeah, anyways, I, I still struggle with getting up in the morning, but I have had periods where I was, where I mastered it, but it was, it's always for like a two week period. Mm. Like, um, do you know, uh, Jocko Willink? Yep. He's like the Marine guy who like... gets up at four 30 <laughs> in the morning every day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that was what, that's, that was what inspired one of my successful two weeks stints of, getting up I, I got up at like 5 a.m mm. every day which is I, I have to like start getting my the school lunches ready for my kids at 6 30. so 6 30 is when i was normally getting up i was like you know what i'm gonna get up like an hour and a half before that and i got up at 5 a.m for two weeks straight um and uh but yeah I, and i can't you know it's too far in the past now for me to pinpoint exactly why it petered off but it's always, it's always, and there was another time when I was, I woke up successfully in the morning and it was because I like specifically planned an enjoyable activity for myself when I first wake up in the morning. It was like the only, other than staying up late in the evening, it's the only time when I could have like peaceful, quiet time to myself to like play a video game or something. So like, I'm just going to get up early and play video games. And I did that for a while and that worked, mm -hmm. but again only for like two weeks and that's really the missing piece uh, i know for me when it started is because i was i was working too much and i had school 
So like I had to find a time to do my readings somewhere. Yeah. And so I was able to start successfully doing that in my third year. That's when I met you. So at Dominican, because I was doing philosophy all of the time. Where at mm. St. Thomas, it was like philosophy sometimes. And then you had the rest of the liberal arts stuff. So you had to have mix and match. So when I first got to Dominican University, I was able to actually be fully immersed into the thing I loved the most. Yeah. But I had no time to study for it. So like up until there, I relied on conversation with friends and lectures. Mm. I didn't read anything other than Dante's Divine Comedy because I was obsessed with it. We all know that. <laughs> I have quite the history of that book. But I never read anything because I just didn't have time. I worked yeah. too much and I, I didn't give myself the time. This is another yeah. way to put that. But with the Dominican, I, I knew I wouldn't be able to get away with that. And so that's when I started getting up really early. And I found that I was able to give, like, to, to gift myself two extra hours a day to mm -hmm. actually do the thing I love to do, which was amazing. And that lasted until the end of my undergrad and then my master's, I like slipped back into old habits. Um, and then the Yorkville University master's was the second time that I said, nope, I got to do this because now I'm yeah. like, I'm married. I have a dog. I got to have a lot of time to, to be studying all the time. I wanted to make sure I can actually have uh, yeah. a family. Yeah. Because I was working 40 hours a week too. So I, I, my wife does not like getting up in the morning. And so I said, okay, if I wake up at 5 a.m., that gives me two and a half hours to myself. That's two and a half hours, five days a week. That's a lot of study time. And because I loved what I was doing so much, it was easy to do. And I, easy as in I was able to stick with it because otherwise I'd fail my master's, which was not an option. Yeah. Uh, but the first two months of doing that was like rough, rough to wake yeah. up in the morning and like drag myself to do something. But over time, and this is really the kicker with it, it's two, two tricks here. It is habit, which means proprioception. So we know that. So biologically, it's the same as when you work out. So if what you the go heck? to... What the heck was that word that you just <laughs> Proprioception. So what proprioception is, is... I thought I knew all the words. <laughs> I'm, drawing, I'm drawing from like everything else. So this is a workout term <laughs> that I learned as a personal trainer back in the day. Okay, okay. So this is biology at work. So <clears throat> if you're going to the gym for the first time yeah. and you're going to bench press, to learn how to bench press, the bench pressing is like an awkward maneuver. Because yeah. how many times in your life are you going to end up falling on the floor and have to lift something off of you? Right? <laughs> yeah. It's a weird... So your body doesn't have uh, an understanding encoded, E-N-coded, yeah. into it to know what to do with this. Yeah. Same as riding a bike. So what happens is when you get under that and you, you, you have a personal trainer to teach you, like, where do you put your arms? Where do you put your stomach? All of these things. Flat feet. If you notice, for the first two months... It's very awkward. So you're, mm. you're pushing the weight off and your body's going to like move. You'll jiggle a little bit. Yeah. Everybody jiggles at first. And that's because your abdomen, your um, obliques, they don't know how to stabilize the pressure through to the bottom of your feet. They've never done it. So your mm. whole body's like, oh shit, <laughs> this thing's <laughs> going to fall on my head. What do I do? Right? You start to panic. And so you bench press for the first time. So... 
over the course of the first time, your your body is having your muscles are having a conversation with your nervous system, which is having a conversation with your brain, trying to understand what the hell is going on here. Mm. So if you keep having that conversation, eventually the body or the nervous system will catch up first because it's like, well, okay. we need to produce this amount of energy in this active state to perform this move. And then the neurological link will start to develop with your muscles to say, okay, well, we need to stabilize it this way to use that energy like this to perform mm -hmm. this move. And over time, eventually you'll stop wiggling because your abdomen and your obliques will realize, oh, I'm supposed to crunch this way. And then mm -hmm. your lungs will say, I'm supposed to breathe this way. So your mm -hmm. whole body starts to learn the language of bench pressing. That's something I never thought I'd say out loud. That was awesome. <laughs> uh, and so proprioception <laughs> is the method the body uses. Well, it's, it's what we call what happens when the body learns how to do a maneuver. Okay. Which means your brain, your neurology, your nervous system, your muscles, your energy system, everything has learned. This is how I fire in this circumstance. Mm -hmm. And that becomes muscle memory. So if you do that for a while and then you take five years off working out and then you go back to the bench, uh, you can slide back into the bench and your body will go right back into it. The hic there'll be like f very little hiccups, just like riding a bike. Riding a bike is exactly the same thing. Yeah, I, I think of uh, playing a guitar. Mm -hmm. That's right. Like, like sometimes I'm like, I'm amazed at what my, I don't know if it's my spinal column or what that's in charge of what my fingers are doing when I'm playing the guitar. But like there's certain, there's certain things that like, like somehow, like I don't have to look at the fretboard even. My hand just knows exactly where the seventh fret is. Mm -hmm. That's right. And, and that's like where all the strings are. And like it's when I start thinking about it, that's when I start messing up. Mm -hmm. But if I do, I'm able to just turn off my brain and let my fingers do the muscle memory thing, like, yeah. So that's pro. So that proprioception, that's very specific to like, the body and how it handles like you know bench pressing or riding a bike or playing a guitar how is that are you, are you saying that that's that developing habits or rituals with adhd is this like i'm trying to figure out how that relates to waking up in the morning my argument is it's the same okay it's the same system because remember you know we're not uh <laughs> here's a nerd joke for you remember descartes was wrong we're not a mind body separate, right? Yeah. Like the Cartesian doubt was just because of a drunk Frenchman. There's not much more to mm -hmm. that. And so we're fully embodied beings, which means everything works together. Mm -hmm. And so well, what works for one works for the other and you're building habits here. So unless your body is just the figment of your imagination, <laughs> which could be a conversation for another day. <laughs> Might be a fun one too. Um, I just, I just don't like you just like very, you know, treating Descartes so distinctively <laughs> like that. I had to, <laughs> had to stand up for him a little. <laughs> I know I piss a lot of people off with that, but that's uh, we're just gonna blame Deleuze and Merleau Ponty <clears throat> for the for my attitude towards Descartes these days. All right, but this really ties a lot. This is gonna tie a lot together what we talked about today, especially with ABCs. Okay, is that the the body is. Uh, the human being is an embodied system. So the brain, body, all of it is one thing. 
they act together. And just mm-hmm. like you were talking about, with the, when you start thinking about the frets is when things start to screw up. Mm-hmm. And that's because the brain is getting in the way mm-hmm. of what the body already knows how to do. But the brain knows that because the brain's controlling the body. Yeah. So what's getting in the way is the anxious mind, mm-hmm. which is the prefrontal cortex is thinking I should be doing this next and that next and this next. But when you've built a habit, you don't need the executive functionings to flow. You don't need to think of what's coming next because it's coming next. Mm-hmm. That's it. Your body's just going to do the thing. Huh. And so the job is to, when I say rituals and habit, it's to teach the body to do the thing mm-hmm. so that you don't have to. That's the goal. Nice. And I that's like why it. it's so important to pick one at a time to focus on. And my two tips to the one at a time is to try it and be like, play with it like a scientist. Be like, be like a kid. Like, okay, I'm trying to wake up in the morning. You know, take one. This lasted two weeks. Didn't work out. Fair enough. I just, mm-hmm. I hate waking up in the morning. It's the first time I've done it. So how can I shake this up a bit? What can mm-hmm. I change in my environment to, to take like variable number two? How, what can I add? And that's how I ended up going from having the alarm beside me to across the room to using music that I would definitely wake up to because it's fun uh, with yeah. like Superman, Power Rangers and Judas Priest. So how, how the heck do you pull that off when you're um, sleeping in bed next to someone who does not want to wake up that early? <laughs> well, well, with kindness and love. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm trying to figure out some type of alarm that will wake me up and not my wife <laughs> <laughs> yeah that didn't i didn't when you answer that you could you can help me with that i like, annoyed like my if wife I had with something that. on my like i thought of unfortunately i can't handle having anything on my wrist like i can't wear a wristwatch it's just me either bothers me maybe it's a highly sensitive person thing but uh like if I could have something that would just like vibrate that would is like doesn't make a sound necessarily. I don't you know. You can also try um well I don't know if your wife would like wearing like one of those dark masks like those eye <laughs> things. Oh and then use a light. Yeah, cause my wife currently has a like a sunlight that wakes her up uh it's for like people with um the winter blues. Okay. But it can be timed. It's the most brilliant thing. Yeah. Where it can, it, it'll start to awake at a certain time of the day, which is brilliant. I didn't even know these things existed. She found it and it's kind of changed our lives. But it's a very gentle way of waking up because the lights are on. I don't know how sensitive you are to dark towards light, but I, I sleep in the dark and when the light comes on, I'm up now. Yeah. And that's just how it works. So that light gets me in the mornings. But of course, right. I still have my music alarm because my wife learned to live with it. Okay. <laughs> so that was that. <laughs> we, we had an accord where I annoyed the hell out of her for two years with my Judas mm-hmm. Priest alarm. And now I don't do that. Mm-hmm. But I still have one. All right. Yeah. I mean, that's another, that was another thing that I thought maybe we could talk about is the relationships that you have and how much of an impact that has on your ability to live with ADD because like I am blessed with a very understanding wife 
who it's i mean she even before we oh and this is another whole topic we could talk about but even before we were aware that i have add um she was very understanding but then once we figured that out she's like even more like yeah just very accepting and accommodating wants to you know understands that there's certain things that i don't have control over and and so she's yeah willing to you know help me find ways to modify the environment to make make it easier to handle mm-hmm. all this um and i think that's a really I, I i don't hear people talking about that a lot about how your relationships impact your add symptoms like because when i'm you know when, when i'm obviously we don't have a we have a pretty wonderful relationship but it's not by no means perfect and you know even a quote-unquote perfect relationship is going to have moments of disconnect and you know not feeling like like feeling like there's something wrong in the relationship and i find whenever that's the case whenever i feel like some kind of disconnect between me and my wife it is virtually impossible for me to focus on anything. Like mm-hmm. it's like my ADHD symptoms are turned up to eleven. Mm-hmm. If I have any kind of, right? yeah, it's the only thing I can think about. My mind's just continually going back to it, and uh, and it makes me realize like how much that was the case when I was a kid too. Like we talked earlier about the early inta- early attachment environment. Um, and Gabor Mate talks about that in the Scattered Minds book. Um, and I think that was the case a lot of the time when I was a kid too. Like if I ever felt disconnected from either my parents or my teacher or whatever adult was in charge of me at a given moment, if I felt disconnected from them emotionally, then it was really hard for me to focus on anything else. Mm-hmm. Because think about how threatening that is. Yeah. Right? If you're walking around the world with a different brain, Mm -hmm. then you're going to be highly sensitive to being dismissed, Mm -hmm. dejected, kicked out, looked at as wrong of some sort. And so inner bonding is highly charged. Yeah. I mean, there's few, there's few more dopamine responses than being around the one you love. Yeah. Right. And so, the threat of losing that—this is like the atta- anxious attachment piece—is mm-hmm. highly threatening. Right. And if you're hypersensitive, yeah. then that's and that's end of the world, like to you. Right. So there's a specific yeah. story you're telling yourself about what that means, mm-hmm. and that story becomes singularly focused because you have to do everything you can to avoid the end of the world. But notice what you're not thinking about, right? Is that it's not the end of the world and you have multiple experiences of that. Like we've been married for a long time. I've, I've messed, I know in my own relationship, I've messed up way worse than this (laughs) in the past and everything turned out fine. Yeah. You know, or, or, you know, you can think about characters and value systems of your, your wife. Mm -hmm. Like I'm just, dis- I feel disconnected right now, but I know 
I know who I feel disconnected from. So what are the odds that this is uh, actually disconnect or is something mm-hmm. bothering me about something that happened? Yeah. Like what is, there's a lot of lines yeah, of I, curiosity you can take to try to get into it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yep. Um, but yeah, and, and I find, yeah, when I, when I say disconnect, like when I feel it's really, it really comes down to disconnection from myself. Mm-hmm. Right. And like something, if some, something happens in the relationship that triggers uh, like a shame spiral. Right? That's right. Where I just, I feel ashamed and I don't know if this is the case with everyone or everyone with ADHD or not, but personally, when, when my shame is triggered, I go into like freeze mode of like, can't do anything, mm-hmm. which unfortunately triggers more shame, right? It's like, That's right. cause now I'm ashamed of not being productive not getting things done of not being able to connect with people and then that leads to more shame and then that leads to more like uh yeah more freezing and unproductiveness and uh that can last (laughs) that can last for a while yeah and that that's i'm exactly the same i call it my glass box I, I okay. end up getting stuck in a glass box. It typically will come out. It comes out its strongest in moments of grief, mm-hmm. uh, but it shows up in moments of shame. Where I get like locked in, and so mm. it's almost like I want to talk, but I can't. So it's, it's I'm like behind a barrier of some sort, and I can't connect. And then I get caught in thinking about like all the ways I screwed up. What mm-hmm. could have happened? So. And all of these are amygdala responses designed to keep you in the freeze response because something is threatened. But because of the weaponized shame, it's you that's threatening yourself, which is a nightmare to be stuck in. And to try to figure out what you need in those moments when you have ADHD, Mm -hmm. because when you, as we mentioned before, we have, it's difficulties with emotional regulation is what this is. Yeah, yeah. So it's attempting to take the time to emotionally regulate doesn't become a priority when you're stuck in the glass box. Yeah. Cause you're already in it. So it already feels like what I call a red line response where like your, to- your stress is already at max and now you're reacting. Mm. Right. And we know when the amygdala starts to react, the prefrontal cortex shuts off because it's not needed. You need to survive the saber tooth tiger attack. So now you're just going <laughs> on all cylinders. But yeah. Unfortunately it's a shame response. So now the cylinders are just keeping you stuck more and more and more and more into this glass box yeah yep and uh and i so i I find that there's like there's always you can always approach a problem like that from two directions Mm -hmm. like there's the problem of solving the problem of how to get out of that shame spiral when you're in it but then there's also you can also solve the problem of preventing those shame spirals from initiating in the first place or at least noticing them and nipping them in the bud before they get like full blown that's right um and one thing that's been so helpful for me and it's this is still an ongoing process and probably will be for the rest of my life 
Um, but something that's been so helpful for me over the past, even just the past year of my life, like it was only about a, a well, even a little less than a year ago that I realized that I have ADHD. Mm-hmm. Um, and just the discovery of that and you know, starting to connect with other people who had similar experiences, doing research about all the symptoms involved has really increased my self-compassion. Mm-hmm. Like my ability to just feel a sense of caring for myself. And it's such a, I don't know. I want to say that self-compassion is the opposite of shame, but because of how how good a job it does of counteracting the shame but it's almost like uh, i don't know this is still like kind of a fresh concept for me so i don't have it very well thought out but i i I feel like shame and self-compassion are almost like two sides of the same coin Mm. not opposites so much as like they're both trying to, to, to serve the same purpose, but one does it in a, a healthy way and one does it in an unhealthy way. Yeah, one does it with a hammer, the other does it with a hug. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, like they're both, like shame and self-compassion are both forms of self-protection, I guess mm-hmm. I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's the perfect that's the perfect quilting point for all of this is, is, you know, having ADHD and growing up with it brings on a lot of shame in our environment. And a lot of the, a lot of the issues that we're, we have later on in life comes from the amount of shame that we were handed when we were younger. Yeah. And one of, one of the biggest pieces of advice I ever got that helped me a lot and I, you, you heard me say it a couple of times, but it's understanding like what's under the hood. Mm-hmm. Part of that is a compassion conversation because what it's saying is you operate a certain way. Fair mm-hmm. enough. So now how can we build an environment and a life that fits how you operate? Exactly. Instead of trying to change how you operate to fit the, the life. Like even me, like my decision to pursue uh, a therapy degree to become a therapist that was like the clearest example in my life so far of me changing my environment to suit what's under the hood because <laughs> um, like I've never had a job that I really loved mm-hmm. I've had jobs that were enjoyable in different ways but like therapy like Oh my goodness, I love I love being a therapist. Yeah, me too. Like it's like oh, I just if I'm having a crappy day and I and then and then I have a therapy session with one of my clients, I'm just like I feel so much better after. Mm-hmm. And uh yeah, I know that that's not what the, the therapy session is not for me to feel better, but <laughs> helping someone else feel better is a very rewarding experience and just having that like deep 
conversation with another human being is a very rewarding experience getting to witness that change and uh yeah i feel like you know i'm not quite doing it full time yet but i feel like i've really started to like build a life that's in line with what's under the hood for me mm-hmm. and it's such a refreshing and rewarding experience it's like there's some deep part of me that's like breathing a big sigh of relief mm-hmm. for like the first time in 30 whatever years i can never remember how old i am <laughs> i think i'm going to take a, a shot at it i'm going to say 36 because i think i'm two years older than you two or three from when i met you because i started late i don't know how old oh. you were when you started school you know what um i think the beard probably uh adds a couple years i'm pretty sure i'm 33 33 yeah you're that much younger than me whoa yeah i'm just really mature for my age well yeah (laughs) because were you in first year when i showed up in dominican that would make Uh, sense i think so i think that's where the screw up happened you were you weren't in third year you were in first year yeah Man, the gift of a small school yeah that was a tiny school yep i loved loved that experience but anyway we're not here to talk about that um yeah what was i gonna say yeah so i mean i liked what you just said i know that a lot of our background is ex- existential mm-hmm. uh, a little bit existential therapy and really the knowing how, what's under the hood and how you operate and making the world mm-hmm. work for that mm-hmm. fits everyone ADHD or not. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And it has a lot to do with creating meaning out of your environment and yeah. pursuing things that make you fulfilled. Or as you know, mm-hmm. Amartya Sen would say, pursuing things that you have reason to value. Cause once you do that, then you can flourish, which we know, yes. you know, happiness in our society, we have a different view of happiness. Like we're all supposed to be smiling and joyful all the time, which makes no sense because that's not part of the human experience, but it's flourishing, right? Eudaimonia, it's doing the things that you have reason to value. Mm. And you, we always encounter those moments where they give us sparks, kind of like the yeah. crash cart conversation we were talking about before the podcast. And it's when you get to pursue those things is when you really can feel fulfilled. And that's where the passion comes from. And for people mm-hmm. with ADHD, we're very passionate people. Yeah. And so the best gift we can give to ourselves is to pursue the things we have reason to value because it's exciting, it's thrilling, it's difficult, but it's worth it. And you always mm-hmm. know that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, <clears throat> I, yeah, yeah, definitely. It's very valuable to pursue the things you're passionate about. That can be, at the same time, that can be a frustrating thing to hear. It was a frustrating thing for me to hear for a long time because I didn't really know what I was passionate about. Like part of part of that growing up with that automatic learned shame response is, and I don't know, maybe you had a different experience, but for me, a big part of that was turning off turning just turning off that part of myself that got really excited about things mm-hmm. and so for a long time I was I had no idea what I wanted like I didn't really and I think this is I don't know maybe this is more common than people talk about but I really didn't figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up until like three years ago <laughs> yeah you and me both you know it's uh 
it's interesting with that. It's kind of like, I really like, I mean, uh, I'll end it with this. I, I like Abraham Maslow a lot, even though his theories were like pretty problematic in their own right. But the one thing that I really liked about something he said was the self-actualizing doesn't, it's not a state that you're just like, oh, I did it. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's I am self-actualized. <laughs> right? It's a pursuit. And all he meant by that is when you get to a place where you can start pulling on those threads when they show up, those threads of passion, when you, you're in a place where you can actually take the time to pull them and see where they go, mm-hmm. that's all a part of the, the journey of flourishing. Mm. And I know that for me, like I was pretty miserable by the time I finished my master's because a lot, my first master's because a lot had happened. Okay. And then I spent like years just drifting in a depressive state. And then I became a life coach. And I was like, well, this is what I'm going to do because it's exciting. Sure. And then I failed miserably at that, which was fine. Um, and then I just so happened to have met someone in my life coaching who talked about counseling. And I was like, oh, I wonder. And the more I read about it, the more I was like, oh, shit, this is it. Mm. So then yeah, I like watched videos, I read books, I did all this stuff. And I'm like, I need to do it. I need to do it. So then I got into the school and I did it. And then I, I remember sitting in a session with my very first client. And I was scared. He's the first live human, right? And the minute they started talking, I like, I opened. It was the weirdest experience I've ever had. But it was, I felt yeah. like my entire body was on fire. I was so excited. And that I was so awesome. like, wow. <laughs> yeah. And that's... That's how I knew, but I had to, pers- I had to pull the string yeah, from trying yeah, yeah. to be a life coach, trying to all this stuff until, until yeah. I found Yeah. It. And I honestly was not even, I was not a hundred percent sure about the whole therapy thing. And until like, even after I did the academic portion of the degree, hmm. I was, there's still part, like, I was pretty sure, but there was part of me that was like, you don't really know until you sit down with the client mm-hmm. and, uh, yeah, and even the first couple sessions with clients for me was like, I was so anxious that I didn't really have, there wasn't really any brain space for me to pay attention to the parts of me that might enjoy the the process. My poor client, my poor first clients. <laughs> <laughs> we all have those stories. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, no, I, I really really enjoy it uh, that's what i wrote for my i remember my uh you have to write a letter of intent to the school when you're applying that's what i wrote in my letter of intent was that i feel that becoming a therapist is part of my self-actualization process nice <laughs> yeah it turned out to be true it did that's yeah. awesome well all right man this was a great conversation as always yeah that was awesome yeah thank you for uh talking with me about all that i have definitely taken some notes here some very messy adhd style notes (laughs) is there there any other kind (laughs) uh yeah i've got the abcs the proprioception other things perfect well, all right. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening. If you have any comments or questions, you can shoot them to the Instagram at couch.2.couch. Uh, and you can reach out to me. Steve, you can let everybody know how to find you. 
Yeah. Uh, so my website is mentalhealthformen.ca. Uh, I, I, I don't only see men, but that's I, I'm going to get another website as well. But that's my that's my main way to. All right. We'll see you next time, everybody. At the moment. Mm-hmm.